Let's open with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do come before you this morning with great thanksgiving for the opportunity to be together with the body of Christ. We pray that you would guide our thoughts and our words, that each would be strengthened by the fellowship of the Spirit with other believers. Lord, we pray that everything we do this morning would be pleasing to you, would be a sweet aroma to you, would bring you glory and honor, for that's the distinct reason that we've come together, is to worship and to honor you. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue in the book of Daniel, you'll guide our thoughts and our understandings, that you would show us the truth clearly and you would help us to embrace it and incorporate it into the way we think about our world today. And may that, Lord, guide us into giving you greater glory and honor. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray this morning. Amen. This is week number 55 in our study of the book of Daniel. And hopefully today we come to the end of chapter 9. So... Um, it's been a long road here, but much to be understood out of this chapter. And so um, last week we, or for many weeks, we've been talking about this message that Gabriel gave to Daniel that he received from God. So this has been God's message, and it's all about what will happen from the time of Daniel, from when the, you know, this is the first year after the Medes and Persians had overtaken um, Babylon, Babylon, that this is given. And it's all about what happens from that point all the way to the end of time, the end of the age and beyond. And so this is uh, the decree of God. It's not like this is optional, that this might happen that this could mean something else. This is the decree of God of what will happen in human history from the time of Daniel, somewhere around uh, 550 BC, until the end of the age, yet future for us. And so, uh, you know, we've looked at it and tried to link uh, some of the things that happen here in Daniel to those that we see over in Revelation, usually using mainly the time frame references, where there are several different passages that point back to multiple things that we have seen in Daniel. And so we, we talked about um, all those time frames and how what is being given to Daniel here seems to match up to what we see over in Revelation. Um, so that's the link that we're making. That's the way I believe the book should be understood uh, in now in the New Testament with the full revelation of God having been given. Um, Daniel, of course, did not understand all that we can glean from this because he didn't have the light of the New Testament. So he understood some things, but he didn't understand them all. Um, so you just have to take it that way. Daniel's actually told uh, to seal up uh, some of the things that he's seen especially at the end of the book. He's told to, um, that he doesn't need to worry about this. That this is given for another time. And so uh, 
uh, we're not making all the links between Daniel and Revelation um, because we're studying Daniel, not Revelation. So if we ever get to Revelation, which is where we're headed, then you will see clearly all the links back to Daniel because there are many things in, Dan in Revelation that point back to the things that we've seen in Daniel. So we'll make some of the links just so we can gain some understanding, but not all of them. So we're in verse 27 of chapter 9, the very last verse, which I believe speaks of the time that we call, uh, or that Jesus called, the Great Tribulation, the very end of the age. And so just reading that verse, Daniel 9, 27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So we talked about the one week and the links that we see with the breaking of the covenant in the middle of the week and how all that relates to the person called the Antichrist and the seven years and then the three and a half years uh, that he's allowed to reign. Or we saw it said several ways. You see uh, in the middle of the week, which would be in the middle of a seven-year period, three and a half years. Um, we saw it described as uh, 1,260 days, which using 360 days to the year is exactly three and a half years. We also saw it described as 42 months, um, which again is three and a half years. And then we saw it described as a time, times, and half a time. Again, one plus two plus a half, three and a half, three and a half years. So we've seen this described in multiple ways, both in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, each pointing to one another. And so we, we've seen those links. We understand that the worst part of the tribulation will be in the last three and a half years when the beast comes up out of the sea and he's given dominion over the earth for, um, for three and a half, for 42 months, the scripture says. And so that's all those times, I believe, are the same time, both in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, all corresponding to one another, just set in different ways. Um, I think set in different ways so that you can make the link, actually. Um, but that's up for debate. Now, whatever translation you prefer, the, in the NAS, the end of this verse is hard to read. Hard, I mean, they could have said it simpler. But if you leave out um, this parenthetical phrase, one that is decreed, then it reads much easier. You can say, um, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even till a complete destruction is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So it reads better, because you, you understand that, okay, we're talking about the destruction of the one who makes the covenant, which I believe points back to the previous verse and who is the prince, uh, uh, the, uh, the prince who is to come is the way that it says. So um, I think the ESV maybe does a better job here. Um, the way it reads, it says, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, meaning the guy who comes and makes desolate on the wings of abomination 
is brought to an end. The end, his end is poured out on him. And so that's what this, this verse is talking about. Now I want to talk about some of the ends that we have seen in the book of Daniel up until this point. And I'm even going to look at one beyond this point. And just think about this rationally with me. Because if you read this verse, what does it say? It says, this guy is dominating, right? And then it's poured out, meaning it comes like a flood. It comes unexpected, it comes immediate, and he's done. There's no lingering, there's no going on. He's brought to an end like a flood. I mean, he's totally decimated. Okay, so we look at some of the things that we've talked about in Daniel up until this point. And I want to show the correspondence to this type of an end that Daniel has already seen and then talk about what has actually happened in history. Have we seen this type of an end? So if you turn back to chapter 7, and you'll remember this is the vision of the four beasts. And the last one is what Daniel is most interested in, I think for several reasons. First of all, he's different from the other beasts. And if you remember the other beasts, they were described as a lion and as a bear and as a leopard, okay? Single animals. The last beast can't be described that way because he doesn't look like anything that would re one beast could represent. He's much more ferocious, much more terrible than any one beast. So I think that's why the scripture says he's different from the rest because you can't describe him as just one animal. <clears throat> All right, not only that, but this is the one that Daniel is told who overcomes, well, he wars against the saints and overpowers them, which would have grabbed Daniel's attention because here you have the people who've placed their faith in God being wiped out, being overcome by this beast. So Daniel is quite concerned about this beast. And so most of chapter 7 is about that fourth beast. All right, and of that beast, down in um, verse 25, we see what happens to him. In 25, this is speaking of that last um, the fourth beast. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and his dominions will serve and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Okay, so this, this beast is speaking against the highest one. He's overcoming the saints. He's warring against them and then all of a sudden his dominion is taken away. Not drawn out, not weakened, done away with, just and replaced by the kingdom of God, which goes on forever and ever. So there's this immediate 
end to this fourth beast. His dominion is taken away. And notice that it says that all the dominions will serve and obey him, meaning God. Now, where in history have you ever seen all the dominions of the earth serving and obeying God? Can't think of one, right? Because there's never been one. Clearly today, all the kingdoms and the dominions don't serve and obey God. They do the exact opposite, the vast majority. So if you have the interpretation this happened in 70 AD, then when since 70 AD have all the dominions served and obeyed God? It hadn't happened yet. So that's just one more reason why I think this points to the end of the age as opposed to something that happened back in the first century. Because, I mean, it's pretty explicit, right? That all the dominions serve and obey God. It's not unclear. It's not hard to understand is that when this fourth beast is done away with, God's kingdom comes and all the earth serves him and obeys him. So that hasn't happened. And, and this, this kingdom of this fourth beast is immediately destroyed and annihilated and done away with and replaced with the kingdom of God. So there's that immediate end, just as we see over in chapter 9. Well, there's more, right? There's chapter 8, which is the vision of the, um, the bear and the goat. No, that's not right. Yeah, the bear and the goat. And you, we know that the first was the kingdom of uh, the Medes and the Persians. And then the second, because we're told that explicitly in this chapter. I mean, it's not unclear whatsoever. Um, verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two, sorry, ram and a... Um, Goat, the ram which you saw with the two horns represent the kings of, of Media and Persia. How much clearer could that be? And then we know who the goat is by the next verse. This shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Pretty clear. Not, not convoluted, not hard to understand. So this goat who is at the end, because he does away with the Medes and the Persians, that's the defeat of the Persians by Alexander the Great. He's clearly mentioned here as a single horn on the ram's head. And then his kingdom, when he dies, is split into four kingdoms. Now, Alexander the Great came to an end early in life by an unknown reason. No doubt would never debate that. But his kingdom did not. His kingdom went on and was split into four kingdoms. But nevertheless, the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria were strong kingdoms and are the ones who dominated for the next few hundred years. And so, and they warred against each other often. And so um, Alexander the Great came to an end, but his kingdom did not. And we're talking about the kingdom coming to an end because it says his dominion was taken away. So it's not talking about Alexander the Great. We're talking about the Grecian kingdom because the chapter goes on to talk about one who comes out of that kingdom 
warring against the saints again. Now, I believe this was fulfilled in a short-term frame by um, Antiochus Epiphanes. I believe he did what is said in here, but I think it yet points to the end of the age because of this immediate end again. You look in, um, in this chapter and you remember the time frames don't correspond to seven years. Um, it's said that he, uh, you'll have the morning and the night when he is ruling for 2,300 days, a little over six years. And so the time frames don't match to the end of the time, but the way in which um, the king is destroyed does. So there's some things that point, some that don't. And so you look, just look at how he, uh, what's happening in this chapter. In verse 14 is where you see that about the 2300 days. He said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings, the same way, the same phraseology that's used in Genesis, evenings and mornings, um, the holy place will be properly restored. So this particular attack goes on for 2,300 days. Now, in verse 25, Daniel is told how it all comes to an end. And so reading that verse, talking about this insolent king who is arrogant, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. So while he's blaspheming, while he's speaking against God, he's broken without intervention by a person, meaning no other human being kills this king. He's killed not in battle or not by poisoning as many in this day would have been killed. He's killed by some unknown agency that is not human, not by the hand of a human. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, they believe uh, because of his sorrow of his losses, pretty much went insane and then died in his palace alone. No natural cause that they could find. So was that the hand of God killing him? Don't know. But he came to an immediate end. A sudden, unexpected. I mean, they were ruling over Jerusalem. They were having their way. Many of the Jews had defected and supported Antiochus' troops and their people. And they had a garrison uh, in Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem. That's where they stayed, and that's where they were stationed. And um, you had idols all set up in Egypt, and they were worshiping Jews who tried to obey the Mosaic law by sacrificing them on the altar of Zeus built over the altar of God, um, human sacrifices, once a month of all the people they had caught in the previous month. And so this horrendous reign and rule and domination all of a sudden is done, comes to an end. Antiochus is gone. And so again, you have a sudden kingdom 
that is all of a sudden gone and not replaced by a kingdom where all the peoples of the earth serve and obey him. Didn't happen. I mean, the Maccabees came and began to rule over Judea. They stayed there for not quite 100 years, and then the Romans came in. So nobody obeying the sovereign God in any of this. I mean, the Maccabees tried to in that little area of Judea, but the rest of the world is being ruled by the Romans at that time who had overtaken the Greeks. So these sudden, immediate ends. And then, of course, in chapter um, 9, we have the immediate end, right, that we have in this um, particular message that the one who is making desolation, coming on the wings of abomination, that his end is poured out, an immediate end. All right, now there's one that we haven't looked at yet. We will, if the Lord wills, over in chapter 11. And all you need to know in order to understand what the point that I'm trying to make is that this is all about another king, I believe the one that matches up the tribulation and the verses we're getting ready to read. Um, there's debate about that, and we'll talk about that as we get to it. Um, but down in verses 44 and 45, the last two verses of chapter 11. Now this king um, is warring against the kings of the north. He's warring against the kings of the south. He hears of um, a kingdom coming from the east, and he's concerned about that, so he goes out to make war against that kingdom. So this guy's fighting everybody. And then in verse 44, but rumors from the east and the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his tents of his royal pavilion between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to an end and there will be no one to help him. So while he's destroying, annihilating, he's pitched his tent between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea, so he's in Judea, not in Jerusalem, but just outside of it, um, that he's got his camp and he's warring and he's annihilating everybody, but the end comes. And he himself is destroyed immediate end to this one who is annihilating really at this time the whole world. He goes against the north, the south, and the east and annihilates them all. He's the one who destroys the city of Babylon. And we'll have to talk about why does he do that if Babylon is the seat of evil? And it is. So why does he destroy it? And there are reasons. And we'll talk about what that might be. But you see, in all of these visions of Daniel, in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11, all these visions that he has, things come to an immediate end. They just stop. And if you think about what the history that we've looked at, when, you, see, you know, it started with the Babylonian kingdom. And the Babylonian kingdom fell to the Medes and the Persians without even a skirmish, without any war whatsoever. The, the Medes and Persians just marched into Babylon. Now, it's true that the kingdom of Babylon was not in its heyday. It was clearly descending under the rule of Belshazzar. 
and Belshazzar himself is killed, but the kingdom goes on. It's just ruled by different people. It doesn't come to an end. And by the way, the whole world doesn't serve and, and obey God because of the Persians. So that doesn't seem to happen. But the Babylonians did fall to the Persians. Then the Persians come and they rule for several hundred years and ultimately fall to Alexander the Great. But they don't fall immediately. There's chronicled many wars between Alexander and his troops and the Persians. Alexander invaded them multiple times over multiple Persian kings, and it took years for him to overtake Persia. So there was no immediate fall of Persia to Alexander the Great. And then the same thing, when the Seleucids and the Ptolemies fell to the Roman kingdom, it was not immediate. It took almost a hundred years for the Romans to take the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and, and it'll be talked about in chapter um, 11, where we'll see those wars between Egypt and Rome that go on for an extensive period of time. There is no immediate fall. And so that doesn't match to the things we've been seeing in Daniel. And then when the Romans fell, ultimately to the Turks who set up the Ottoman Empire, and you have the Ottoman Caliphate that controls all of the Middle East for a long time, for 600 years, but Rome didn't fall in a day. Matter of fact, Rome fell not to the Ottomans and Turks, but to the Germania tribes because the capital had been moved to what is today Istanbul, in those days called Constantinople, because it was named after Emperor Constantine, who moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople. And then it lasted, not immediate end, for another thousand years. So it didn't come to an immediate end. Now, there was a war that defined when ultimately the Turks overtook and took Istanbul, no doubt about that, but it certainly was not immediate. It took a long time and multiple wars to, for the Romans to ultimately fall to the Ottomans. And so none of those kingdoms that we've seen and talked about, not the Babylonians, not the Medo-Persians, not the Greeks, not the Romans, any of, none of them fell immediately. It always took multiple um, wars or multiple periods of decline before they actually fell. So there's not this, in your greatest day, when you're annihilating everybody and you're wiping out the whole world, you brought to an end. It's just not there. And since the Romans, not even the Ottomans, ruled the way the Romans did, there has been no singular power on the earth that ruled in the way that the Babylonians, the Persians, uh, the Greeks, or the Romans did. Nobody has ever done that. The powers have always been fragmented as they are today. I mean, there's, there are a lot of superpowers, right? We could go down and name them, but not one of them dominates over all the others. They each have their particular areas in which they're strong. 
It's always been that way since the Romans fell. So there is no worldwide kingdom. But this speaks of one, chapter 9, verse 27, speaks of one who makes a covenant with many, not just the Jews, and then he wars against them, he annihilates and destroys, and then he is brought to an end. Just immediate. It's done away with. We don't see that in, in, in all the other visions of Daniel. That's true. That the one who is reigning and ruling is brought to an immediate end. So you go, well, what about that? Where, where, where does that match anything that we've seen in history? And it doesn't. But there is a place that matches, right? And it's found in Revelation, in chapters 19 and 20. And so you're, you have in your mind this immediate, ultimate, total desolation of one who is ruling and reigning and can do what he pleases, has his way, and he's at his height of his kingdom. So over in Revelation chapter 19... Right. It's as bad as it can get. So, so that, is, that is something that makes this potentially very confusing and easy to get. That has been the epochal building from the beginning of time. The building of transgressions and then you see in Second Thessalonians for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work and it will remain so until he who restrains it is taken out of the way, which means there's going to come a particular time that you're heading us to where all hell on this earth breaks out without the restraining work of the Holy Spirit of God. Are of believers. And it's going to usher in this time. And I, I can't help but wonder if that's not part of the relationship between the mark of the beast, 666, which is the fullest of man apart from God, which is man that is most unrighteous. Well, and it's not only man, because remember, this... this this battle, this uh, opposition is from the unholy angels, is from Satan himself. And he's the one who's giving power to this human who is ruling the earth. So the power and the authority is supernatural. The person is natural. Sure. And there are multiple examples in history of where God used evil kingdoms to punish righteous people. I mean, it, it's just, it's replete with that. And in, this, in the tribulation, that's exactly what's happening until God finally decides to judge all of them. Go ahead. Is that the second three and a half years from the wrath of God is poured 
Yeah, you know, there in Revelation, there are things that only God could do, and there are things that um, Satan and evil men can do. So you have both mixed together in the book of Revelation. I think most of the cataclysmic, cosmic things happen early, and then at the, when the beast comes to reign, then you have humanity at its worst, empowered directly by Satan. So the, the beast himself, the one we call the Antichrist, rules for the last three and a half years. Not the first three, well, he's there in the first three and a half, but he is a symbol of peace. And let's all get together and let's, because um, the world is a mess by cataclysmic, catastrophic things like earthquakes and um, stars falling to the earth, which could very well be meteorites or comets that pollute all the water and kill a third of the animals in the ocean. There's just havoc everywhere. And, and the world is looking for a leader, and that is the Antichrist. Right. Right. Which is where we're at when you get to chapter 19. The three and a half years of the reign of the Antichrist have played out. He has conquered everybody, which is why when he comes against the Lord himself, all the armies of the kings are with him because they've been conquered by him. They're subservient to him. And if you don't come with him, he'll just wipe you out. So they're all gathered together with him. Israel has been brought home. Israel is... Well, at the middle of the tribulation, right? Here at the end, they're hidden by God in probably the desert somewhere. They're nourished and hidden by God for 1,260 days is what the scripture says. So they're there, but you can't see them, or you can't find them. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, I think beautifully. Um, and we talked about all of that when we walked through Ezekiel, and we saw the kingdom of God start after this happens. Okay, so we, we a couple of things just to pick out and look at in Revelation 19. You look at verse 11 and 12. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has written on him which no one knows, a name which no one knows except himself. And then you drop down. Who's, so is he there by himself on a white horse? Not exactly. Because you drop down to verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So the armies of heaven, and you could do talk for a long time about who is that because 
they don't have to do anything in this war. You'll see that in a minute. Um, is that the saints who are on white horses? Is that the angels who are pictured in their glory? I, I don't know. It doesn't really matter because look at the other side of what's going on down in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying, all the birds which are fly in the midheaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and then the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So picture it, right? You can almost see it. You've got Jesus Christ sitting on a white horse and gathered with him are all the armies of heaven on white horses. And then opposing them on the other side, you've got the beast who we saw come up out of the um, sea in chapter 13. And he's been reigning for three and a half years. And he's gathered together with him all the armies of all the kings of the earth so that he can fight against God himself. And so there's the, the battle lines are drawn. Then the angel comes, and knowing what the end is going to be, says, all the birds come, because it's getting ready to be a great feast. You're going to have more to eat than you could possibly imagine. So the angel declaring at the time when the troops are gathered, who's going to win? Okay, then the war ensues, right? Sort of. Sort of. There's really not much of a war here because you go on to the very next verse, verse 20 of Revelation 19, and while the troops are gathered and you got all your armies and guys on horses and you're ready to fight, then it simply says, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with the flesh. So you got all these troops ready. They're armed. They're ready to battle against God and God simply speaks a word and they're all killed except for two. The beast and the false prophet, and they're just picked up and thrown into the lake of fire with no resistance whatsoever. An immediate, total destruction and annihilation, uh, immediate end. And then the one who's given them their power. Down in chapter 20, and in verse 2, well, we'll start in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it sealed over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. So not only the beast and the false prophet, 
but Satan himself. And you notice it gives us Satan, the devil, the serpent of old, and um, the dragon. All four of them, which helps you interpret previous passages in Revelation. Because here they're all the same person. And he's thrown into the abyss, sealed over, and he can't get out for a thousand years. He has no realm whatsoever. An immediate, cataclysmic, total annihilation of the armies, of their leaders, and of Satan himself. Gone. That matches to what we see in the prophecies in Daniel. At the height of his reign, when all the armies are with him, totally done away with in an instant. Correct. Right. Which we see in John also, right? Right. Well, if you think about it, it's so ridiculous that even Satan himself thinks he can overcome the decree of the one who made him. How absurd is that? And God just laughs. Yeah, I mean, it goes on and on. And Satan here and the beast with him and all the armies think they're going to beat God. They totally expect to be victorious. And they don't even fight. They don't even get to speak. Because Christ speaks and they're dead. So this, one of the greatest reasons why I believe that Daniel is pointing to Revelation is because of the way this ends. And what happens after this? Jesus Christ sets up his millennial kingdom and all the earth worships and obeys him. Why? Because he rules with an iron rod and those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ rule with him. Yeah, it's instantaneous. And it's, it's what Daniel speaks of, or what the messages to Daniel speak of, and it's what happens in Revelation. And nowhere else in history can you point to that. That hadn't happened, especially with it being followed by all the world obeying God. It just has never happened. It never will happen until it happens this way. So it's coming. That's the end of chapter 9. We spent enough time there, right? I went back and looked. We started in week 34, which means we spent 22 weeks in 27 verses. I I appreciate you guys just hanging with me and walking through that. We'll go a little faster in chapters 10, 11, and 12. Not a lot, but a little bit faster. And if the Lord wills, we'll ultimately come um, to that battle that we were just talking about that's given in chapter 11. Part of John's 
Well, it, you know, and people say it's not really important that you talk about eschatology, but what else in this time and age is going to calm your heart but to know this is what's coming? As you walk us through the Gospels, we're going to see that this was yeah. absolutely top of mind for Christ. Oh, no, no doubt. So I appreciate your time.